0: Okay, so it's spring. It's the first day of spring today, officially. And what does spring mean for basketball fans? March Madness, absolutely. We've been cheering and screaming for our favorite teams, right? Everybody excited about March Madness? Wow. First service was ten times as excited about March Madness as you guys. Apparently you haven't been watching a lot of basketball. Well, I thought in the spirit of celebration, it's March Madness. Everybody's cheering for their teams We would talk about something today that we can cheer just as loud for. So you ready for this? Are you ready for this? You all don't look like you're even awake. Are you ready for this? Today's topic topic is money. Yeah! Wow. I kind of thought it would be something like that, actually. Actually, we're going to be talking over the next several weeks. We're kicking off a new series this morning. This is our Momentum series, and we're going to be paralleling what many of you are learning in Financial Peace University going through the Dave Ramsey small groups. And so we're going to be talking a lot about how that affects us as a church and how that affects all of us individually. So I'm really excited to dive into that. Just out of curiosity, how many of you are already tied into Financial Peace in one of those small groups and going through that? Wonderful. Several of you are tied into that. That's great. We have, I think it's 80 families right now from our church who are tied into Financial Peace and going through that. So that's an awesome thing. I thought as we started this morning, it would only be appropriate for me to share a little bit of my own story. You know, we've been going through financial peace. A lot of you have been experiencing that. We're going to be talking about um, money and how that affects us and our lives over the next few weeks, talking about stewardship, and I thought, my journey fits into this pretty well. You know, Sherry and I, this summer, will be married 14 years, and so we've, we've had a few years together to kind of get to know each other and figure things out. And like most couples, when we started out, even, actually even before we got married, each of us were kind of on a trajectory when it came to finances. You know we would get the things we wanted and do the things we wanted to do and we didn 't have anybody to tell us no or no other expectations didn 't have any kids to support didn 't have to deal with any of those things and We kind of did what we wanted in life and as we came together and got married, we came into the marriage with just a little bit of debt, but nothing nothing major we, it was all manageable and so we get married and, and we continued to do the things we want to do and We're a young couple. We're not making a lot of money. I mean, I went into ministry, wasn't making very much at all. Sherry went into teaching. She wasn't making a whole lot of money. And so we've got this small salary starting out like you're supposed to as a young couple. But we were trying to live a lot like my parents lived. And yet they had had 20 or 30 years to get all of the stuff that they had. And for us, it was like we just kept trying to achieve the next thing and get the next thing. And so as we went along, not only did we spend the money we were making, but we were spending a little bit more. Visa, MasterCard, and other things played in, and we'd get the things we wanted. And then came kids. And as kids come along, you know that kids are expensive and you have responsibilities with kids. But for us, 11 years ago as Alyssa was born, we made the decision that Sherry was going to stay home for the first year when Alyssa was born. And it was something we thought a lot about, we prayed a lot about, we talked to other people, and we just felt like that was where God was leading us, that she needed to stay home for that first year. And so she stayed home, and here's the amazing thing. In that first year where she stayed home, school board refused to pay her. Can you believe that? I mean, she's a teacher. She's just staying home for a year, no big deal, but they didn't pay her, and they didn't pay for our insurance either. So all of a sudden we had all these extra expenses, and we had just lost 60% of our income. That changes things a little bit. It changes how you should look at life. Well, it should, at least. It didn't for us. We kept doing the same things we were doing. We kept buying the same things we were buying, living the same way. Visa and MasterCard saved us for a couple of years. And then when our twins were born, did the same thing. She stayed home for another year again, felt like God was leading us. It was the right thing to do. She stayed home with them. Again, a 60% cut in income. And yet we kept living the same way, same lifestyle, same standard of living, nothing changed. And we hit this point probably about six or seven years ago, right before we went through financial peace for the first time, where we realized we're in trouble We've built up enough debt now that we're having trouble making the minimum payments. We've built up enough debt that we can't keep up with things. And one emergency is going to send us over the edge. One more thing that breaks in the house. One more thing that breaks on the car. One more little thing that comes along is going to kill us. And we became desperate. But I wasn't about to tell anybody. I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to be having financial problems. I'm supposed to teach you how to handle your money, right? Man, that was tough. And we went through financial peace the first time. And and I'll be honest, I was resistant. I didn't want to go through because I'd already been through a couple courses like that and I didn't care for them. But when I went through financial peace for the first time, here's what happened for me. For the first time ever, I had a realization. And the realization was this. I was in the situation I was in because of me. You see, I'd gone through life up to that point blaming everybody else. Well, the church doesn't pay me enough. Well, the school board doesn't pay my wife enough. Well, you know, we don't do this or we didn't get to do that or, or this person isn't helping us out or we can't get anything or nobody wants to jump in and, and, and pay for everything for us and we haven't won the lottery and we haven't done this or that. But for the first time, I looked at my situation and I went, This is my fault. I did this. My choices, my stupid choices put me here. And it changed everything completely. And it hurt. In fact, it was humiliating. And as we went through FPU that first time and began to be open with some of the people in our small group about where we were and how we were struggling and realizing it really was a time where we took our head out of the sand for the first time and began to realize where we really were financially and see that we had to change something and had to do something. And you know what was even more shocking to me, though, than all of that? as we went through financial peace and we began to talk with other people in the small group and talk to people in other small groups going through it at the same time, I realized, unfortunately, we were a picture of normal in America today. Dave Ramsey shows statistics about 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, same way we were, where one emergency will absolutely destroy them financially. 70%. Look around the room. That's the biggest part of us in this room. 70%. 70% or more are carrying eight to $10,000 of debt or more in consumer debt that's killing them and cannot survive. And yet we keep going in this cycle. And we keep going down this road. And the reality is none of this is relevant to income either. Because you know how we all respond? We're all the same way. We respond the same way. If I just had a little more, if I just could make another $10,000 a year, or if I could just you know, do a, a couple little extra side jobs, or if I could just get this, I'd be happy. I'd make it. Everything would come together. It would all be okay. See, the problem is we get a little more, and then we spend a little more, and then we get a little more, and then we spend a little more, and we keep going down the same road with the same habits. That's where I was. I'm sure that's where a lot of you are too. See, that idea that if we get a little more, it's going to be okay, that's a lie. It's flat out a lie. We're pursuing happiness, but you can't catch happiness. Happiness is a feeling. It's an emotion. You're not going to get there just by getting more stuff. It's not going to make you happy. It's not going to suddenly make things better. See, Dave Ramsey says you can't buy happiness. You can buy fun, but you can't buy happiness. I would take it a step further, and I'd go, that's the problem. We're pursuing happiness all the time. We're trying to do that next thing to be happy instead of pursuing joy. A whole different thing. You see, joy comes from God, and it's irrelevant of our circumstances, where happiness is controlled by our circumstances. It's controlled by our environment. Look at what it says in Galatians 5, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Think about it. You can have joy in the midst of struggle, you can have peace in the midst of turmoil. If you have a little self control, you probably won't experience the struggle that I experienced financially. These are things that are not dependent upon our circumstances or our environment. And the question that really comes out of this for me is who's our master? In all this, who are we looking to? Where are we taking our cues from in the decisions we're making? Who's controlling our environment? Who's the master in your life? Say, I look around the room right now, and you guys are uncomfortable. I can tell. You're uncomfortable. You're looking at your watches, going, Is it lunchtime yet? Are we done yet? Can we get out of here? And you want to know why? Why is because I'm talking to you the same as I've been talking to me all week. And this is not one of those messages where you go, oh, I got this one. He's talking about that guy over there. He's talking about the guy on the other side of the room. He's talking, about, you know, he's talking about my wife or my husband. No. this one I'm talking to you because we all fall into this. The struggles we're going to talk about today, they're real for every single one of us. Some of us may be in different places on the journey, but we struggle the same. And it's tough. See, God knows that money's a big deal. He knows that money's a big deal. Do you realize that in the Bible, there are over 2,350 verses about money and how we handle our money? Let me put it in perspective for you. That's twice as many verses as there are about faith and prayer combined. Think about it a second. Twice as many verses about money as faith and prayer combined. You think God's trying to tell us something? You think he knows something that maybe we're missing? I I mean, I look at this and I go, "This, this is the Holy Bible, my life instruction book. God's love letter to me. Why is he talking so much about money? I mean, why not talk about my spiritual condition and how I need to grow as a disciple and how I need to be more like him? And yet he's spending all this time talking about money. What's the deal? Why is that? What is it that he knows that we don't? I think it's simple. God knows that our money our stuff, our desire for material possessions, that's the one thing above everything else that will separate us from him. That's the one thing that will get in the way. And you know why? Because of those same statistics, about 70% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, we are slaves to our stuff. We're slaves to our possessions, to our money, to our selfish desires. We're stuck in a mentality that we're fighting to break out of. Randy Alcorn says it like this. There's a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitudes and actions concerning money and possessions. Think about that a second. There's a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition. I'm not talking about the spiritual condition you want everybody to think you have. Between our true spiritual condition and our attitudes and actions concerning money and possessions. Let me put it in a little more of a plain English version. The way we handle our money is a direct reflection of our relationship with God. The way we handle our money is a direct reflection of our relationship with God. And so it begs the question, how's our relationship? What does that look like? How is our relationship with God? Is God really first in our lives? Do we trust him completely? Do we depend on him entirely? Are we placing him first in the way we handle our finances? Do you do the minimum of tithing, the 10% that he asks us to take off, off of the top and give back to him? Because it's not ours anyway, it's his. He owns it all, we're just managers. He's just given it to us to use for a little while and to invest for him. And the expectation he puts before us is to give back that first 10%. But are we doing that? Let me answer for you, no we're not. And before you get all upset and worked up about, well, you must be reviewing my giving statement, and I don't need to do that. Do the simple math. At TBA, and these numbers are low. I'm going on the bottom end of things to give you an estimate so you have a picture of this. There's about 150 families who call TBA their home church who attend regularly. Out of those 150 families... The average annual income, I'm guessing, is about $70,000. Now, this is household income two spouses. Some of you are going to be a lot lower. There's going to be a lot of you that are a lot higher. So I'm trying to find that middle ground there just to give us an illustration. But $70,000 for a household. If we were all tithing, $7,000, which is 10% of that $70,000, multiplied by 150 families, do you know what our budget would be at TBA Church? One million fifty thousand dollars annually. Now let us think in a second. If all 150 families—and there's more families than that—we're tithing at seven thousand dollars, which again I'm on the low end of the average. Our annual budget would be a million and fifty thousand dollars. Right now, our current budget is a little over five hundred thousand dollars, and we struggle to make budget. Now think about it from this perspective. How do the questions change and how does the attitude change as a church family if our budget is a million dollars compared to $500,000? See, here's what I see. I see it's going from a church that goes, how are we going to buy that house in Highland City? How are we going to purchase that property that we need to do ministry on? How are we going to keep funding food pantry and clothing pantry? And how are we going to send teams to Haiti? And how are we going to do this and do that? How are we going to support single moms? What fundraisers are we going to do to be able to make that happen? Instead, our questions become things like this. God, where do you want us to invest that? God, what do you want us to do next? Where do you want us to go next? What's the next piece of the vision? What's our next step? What does that look like? Help us see the next piece of the dream it changes the dynamic completely in how you approach ministry. And this is the bare minimum. This is the part that God says, you should be doing this. I gave you the money, give it back, 10%. That's my expectation. I own it, you're managing it. Let's look at it a little differently for a minute. What if you knew God was watching every time you gave? What if next Sunday when you came in, Jesus was sitting at the back door on the left side of the main doors and he was watching the offering box and you had to walk between Jesus and the offering box to get into church and to get out of church. How would that change the way you give? How would it change? There's a story that I love in Scripture about the widow's mite and you've probably heard the story about the widow who drops her two coins, her two little measly copper coins into the offering box at the temple And when she drops her coins in, Jesus calls all of his disciples around and goes, look at this, because this widow has given more than all of the rich people who've come through today. They've all given great gifts, but her two coins is much more valuable because she gave everything she had. And it's this amazing picture of trust and faith. And I've heard the story used hundreds of times. I've used it myself. I've read through it all kinds of times. But this week, as I was reading through it, There was a sentence that stood out to me for the first time. Don't you love it when that happens, when you're reading Scripture and something grabs you? You go through and you go, man, I've read this over and over and over and over, but I've never seen that. And it's the first sentence in the story. In Mark chapter 12, verse 41, it says, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Notice what it didn't say. It didn't say Jesus happened to notice or Jesus casually observed as he walked by Jesus sat down across from the collection box and watched as people gave. You go to other versions and it uses words like he sat down and observed as they dropped in their offerings and their tithes. There was intentionality. There was purpose behind it. Jesus was paying attention. You think money might be a big deal to him? You think there may be something to this? He watched as they gave. And I wonder why is it that we believe in an omniscient God, a God who knows everything, and an omnipresent God, a God who is everywhere at all times. And yet we think that our finance dealings are done in secret, that God doesn't notice those things or doesn't pay attention to those things. And surely He doesn't notice when we rob Him of His tithe. And yes, I said rob. Because it's not your money. It's not my money. It's His he makes that clear throughout Scripture. God owns everything. He owns it all. And he simply asks us to give back that 10%, the first fruits off the top. So you've got to understand, though, giving's a hard issue. It's not about the money. God has never needed your money. God does not need your money, and God will not need your money. He'll use your money. When you give it back, but he doesn't need your money, it's not about the dollars and cents that you put in the offering plate. It's about your heart. And he knows that this is the one thing that separates us. Listen to how Jesus said it in Luke 16. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In this scripture, the word serve is translated wrong. Wrong. Quite simply, you you see this word all throughout Scripture, and every time you see it, they translate it wrong. It says serve every single time. But in reality, the word coming from the Greek is douluo, and it literally translates slave. Slave. You cannot be a slave to two masters. You cannot be a slave to both God and the money. See, if you're anything like me, growing up as an American Christian, we have this, this thing against slavery rightly so because of some of the things that have happened in our country but we fight the terminology and what we don't understand is the picture of slavery that's here is this picture of complete dependence and devotion to it is a picture of god saying i've bought you when i sent jesus to the cross he paid the ransom for your sins that's another monetary term he paid for us he bought us with jesus blood we owe everything to him it's all his And he talks all the time, Jesus talks all the time about coming to the kingdom of God with a childlike faith. Think about a little child as they come to a parent. They come with this complete dependence upon mom and dad. They expect protection. They expect provision. You're going to meet their needs. You're going to feed them. You're going to clothe them. You're going to take care of them. You're going to make sure they're safe. And they're depending on you as a parent to do that. And Jesus tells us all the time, come to me like that. Come to your Father that way. Come to the kingdom of God in that way with a childlike faith, complete dependence, utter trust, not worrying about all the little things, just focused on me. Do we do that? Who do we put our dependence on? Do we put our dependence in God or in us? You see, I would say that most of the time we're more dependent upon ourselves and we've got a lot of good reasons why we are. Look what the Pharisees say in the next couple of verses. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things and they ridiculed him. NIV says they scoffed at him, they pushed back on him. They basically were pushing back against what he was saying, they didn't like it. And he goes on to say, He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God's ways are not our ways. But yet we justify ourselves before men. Just like the Pharisees. We've got an excuse for everything. We've got a rationalization for everything. That's what my journey looked like for a long, long time. I could blame anybody and everybody else for why I was in the financial position I was in. But when I was finally honest and went, you know, I'm here because I chose this. I'm here because I bought stuff that I didn't need. I'm here because I did things that I wasn't supposed to do. It changed everything. You are those who justify yourselves before men. You've had this experience with your kids if you're a parent. They do something wrong. You go to them. You're trying to correct them. And before you can even get the statement out of your mouth, but, Mom, I did, but, Dad, it was really her fault. She did this over here They've got all these excuses, all these reasonings why it's okay. And as a parent, you just want to pull your hair out. And you can see I've had these conversations. (laughs) Don't you think maybe sometimes God feels that way? He says, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's how you should handle my money. Here's how you should be investing for me. And we go, yeah, but... I want to do this, or I've got this, or I need that. Hmm. We're good with excuses, aren't we? We're good with rationalizing things. I hope you guys can hear my heart on this. I know over the last five, six, seven weeks, we've been saying some things that are difficult. We've been talking about some things that are very challenging, but you, you've got to understand where we're coming from. This, In fact, next month, I will have been in ministry with this church in some form or fashion for over 14 years. And in 14 years of ministry, I have never seen God move like He's moving right now. I have never seen hearts changing the way they're changing right now. I've never seen people responding in obedience and getting on board with vision the way they are right now. There are great things happening, and I am convinced that God has amazing plans for this church. But I'm also convinced... Absolutely. Here's the catch. I'm just as convinced that if we're not obedient, that if we don't respond to what he asks us to do in obedience, what's he going to do? He's going to move on to somebody else that will be. We have an opportunity as a church family to make an impact on the kingdom, to make an impact on this community, to make an impact on the world. But we have to be obedient to what God's asking us to do. Let me tell you a little bit about the rest of my story. Six years ago, Sherry and I went through financial peace for the first time. We're now leading a group through it for the fourth time. And every single time we go through, we learn something new. There's something new that refocuses us and keeps us back in with what we're supposed to be doing. But do you realize that in all of that time that we were making stupid financial decisions I was still tithing. I was checking the box. I was taking the legalistic approach. I was taking 10% off the top and giving it back to the church. I'm a pastor. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's that's how we respond, right? And in the whole time what I didn't realize was yes, I was following the law. I was doing the things God told me to do. Checking the box. But I wasn't trusting him completely. I wasn't dependent upon him to provide for me. And even in the midst of my stupidity, his grace carried through and he provided anyway. And he took care of me. But now I'm in a place where I'm having to pay for all the stupid decisions I made. That's how sin works. There's still consequences when we sin. There's still consequences when we make the wrong choice and do the wrong things. And we have to deal with those things. Six years later, we're in a whole different place than we were but we've still got a bunch of debt that we're paying off and a lot of things that we're doing that hold us back from being able to do the things that I know God's calling us to do. Because now we're having to be disciplined and take care of the junk that we didn't take care of 15 years ago and 11 years ago and 8 years ago. See, the thing is, we did not understand contentment. Today's all about learning to be content. How do you do that? How do you learn to be content? Isn't contentment just kind of that thing you feel once you're finally satisfied? Contentment, you know, it's kind of like Thanksgiving dinner, and you eat until you're almost sick, and then you push back from the table. Ah, that was good. My belly's full. I'm satisfied. Everything's good. I'm content. No. Contentment's not a feeling. It's just like all those fruits of the Spirit we talked about. Contentment is It's irrelevant to your circumstances. It's irrelevant to the things going on around you. It's irrelevant to your environment. Contentment is something you learn. Look at how the Apostle Paul said it to the church at Philippi. And you're going to recognize the scripture as we get to the end. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned. Catch that. For I have learned how to be content. With whatever I have. He goes on, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. And Paul really did. You've got to understand, Paul came from a place where he had everything. He was wealthy, he knew what it was like to have stuff. And when he chose to follow Christ, he gave up all of that. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now there's the verse we all know. You know, it's on Tim Tebow's face and it's all these places and people tattoo it on him. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now let's put it in context. Paul's sitting in prison when he writes this. He's sitting in a Roman jail. Talking about how he has learned to be content in whatever life throws at him. In whatever he's been given, he has learned to be content. Or I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength even in prison he had a focus on God he knew who his master was in life see we live in this culture where we think that our wants are really needs I need cable I need a bigger house I don't just need cable. I need HD because I got to see the big game clear. I don't want to miss anything. I need a new car. I need this. I need that. I need some new clothes. I need, I need, I need. Be honest. Your needs are met. If your needs weren't met, you wouldn't be here this morning. Our needs are met. It's our wants that eat us alive. I want this. I want that. And for the rest of our story, Sherry and I had to go through a long season, still are going through, where we gave up a lot of those needs. We moved into our new house in 2007 over here in South Lakeland, and we gave up cable when we moved in. And we went seven years without cable. And guess what? We survived. Did I miss some of the big games? Yep. Guess what, though? Some of those big games, I went to somebody else's house, and they fed me, too. Sometimes it's not so bad to give up some of those things. We made hard decisions about things. We're driving a van that has several miles on it and is having issues, but we're still fixing it up and driving it. I just got a new truck a year ago, but my truck I had before that I waited three years while everything was breaking on it before I finally got something different. And when I got something new, it wasn't the new truck I wanted. It's a nice truck. But it was 10 years old and already had 100,000 miles on it when I bought it but I knew it was going to be a good truck to make it through, and it was what I could afford. We've made decisions along the way that sometimes are tough because we think they're needs, but they're really wants. My kids wear hand-me-down clothes part of the time, most of the time. And In fact, some of those clothes are better than if I went out and bought them because I'm going to buy them from Walmart and other people are giving them to us from name-brand stores. It's okay. We changed our eating habits. How many times we were eating out. It's amazing if you just cut out McDonald's How much money you'll save in a month? You'd be amazed. Sherry and I began to change the way we looked at date nights. We were a little more strategic about where we went and how much money we spent. And we actually found that when we hung out on those cheap dates, we got along a whole lot better than when we paid a bunch of money to go to a fancy restaurant. It's learning to be content. It's a picture of self-discipline. Does that mean you can't have anything? No. It doesn't mean you can't have anything. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. The problem is we let our stuff become our focus instead of God being our focus. Who's your master? Contentment is a choice, it's learned. Some of us need to go back and remember that acronym for joy, Jesus, others, and yourself, because we always put it backwards. It's always us, and then other people, and then God if there's anything left over. And that's not how it goes. It's supposed to be God first, then serving others, and then taking care of us. But we miss that all the time. You know, every time you look back through Scripture and you see stories of revival breaking out, of God's people coming back to Him and and amazing things happening, you know what you see in every one of those stories? Every single time. The first thing that happens is God's people get rid of all their idols. They get rid of all the stuff that gets in the way between them and God. They get rid of the other masters in their lives. And the second thing you see is that they tithe. They come back to God and they give their tithes, they give their offerings, they commit and trust to Him with their money. You still think money's not important? I think if you're honest with yourself, you'll know that your money speaks loudly in your relationship with God. You want to know how important God is? Look at your bank account. Look at your checkbook. It'll tell you. And I know you don't like what I'm saying. But if we're being honest, it'll tell you. It really will. No one can serve two masters. For you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be a slave to both God and money. Jesus died on the cross to buy you and I, to ransom us, to pay our debt. And we owe everything to him. So who are we serving? Who's your master? You got a card when you came in this morning. It looks like that on the screen. Pull it out. It's got that scripture at the top. And at the bottom, it asks you this question. Who or what will be the master of my life? And I want you to take that card, take it with you this week, stick it in your pocket, put it on your dashboard, put it somewhere you're going to see it all the time. And I want you to read that scripture over and over. In fact, I want you to memorize that scripture. And then I want you to ponder that question who or what will be the master of my life? As you're spending your money this week, ask that question. Who's the master of my life? As you're making decisions about what you're going to do and where you're going to go and how you're going to respond, who is the master of my life? And be honest about it. Be honest about it. We're trying to do everything we can to make giving as easy as it can be for you. We have offering boxes here that we tell you about all the time. On occasion, we're going to take up an offering so you have that opportunity. You can do it through online bill pay with your bank. They'll send it straight to the church. takes all the work out of it for you. You plug in a number, and it's done. It's easy. In a few weeks, we're going to be putting a new kiosk in our lobby, and that kiosk will allow you to give online. You can use your debit card to give if you want to do that. It'll also be a great opportunity for you to put in prayer concerns and sign up for small groups and a lot of other things, but it'll make giving easy. Because I know we live in a a culture, in a society, where most people don't carry cash and checks anymore. I get it. So we want to make it as easy as we possibly can. We're in the process of putting a new website into place. It's going to be a couple months getting that rolled out, but when it does, you'll be able to give online in that way. There's going to be lots of ways you can do it. Go home and write a check and drop it in snail mail. It'll still get here. Do what you got to do. Band, you guys can come on up. My challenge for you today is this. If God's laying it on your heart that this is an area in your life where you struggle, And statistically, at least 70% of us in the room are in that boat. Do something about it. And if you're at a place where God's telling you, I need to give, I need to begin tithing, I need to trust Him with that, do that. Drop it in the offering box, send it in the snail mail, do whatever you got to do. It's not about TBA Church getting your money. While it will help and it will be used for ministry and it, it will be used to accomplish the vision, it's not about that. It's about God having your heart. And if we're going to be successful in accomplishing the vision God's put before us, we have to be obedient as a church. This is not optional. This is not a suggestion from God. He tells us, give back the first 10%. It's not yours anyway. For some of you, maybe you're at a place where you go, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not sure I buy in. That's okay. Take that card. Think about it. Read that scripture. Ask yourself that question. Pray about what God is telling you to do. He'll reveal to you where you're supposed to be. Let's take some time and pray. God, thank you for the way you challenge our hearts. Thank you that you love us so much that you won't leave us where we are. And when you see areas of our life that we need to grow, you point those out and help us to grow. And God, I just pray simply this morning that our hearts will be open to you, to your leading and to what we need to do. Help us to respond in obedience. Help us to be faithful to the call you've put before us as a church family. Help us to accomplish the vision you've laid before us. We commit this day to step forward in trust, following after you and your heart. In your name we pray. Amen.